we're going to be continuing in our study in Colossians 3. But since we took a week off, I want to help us get our bearings just a little bit and remember what we studied when we were together a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and we saw that Paul told us that our new life in Christ should have real implications in the way we live and in the way we treat each other. Because we have taken off the old and we've put on the new, we are to live differently. Practically speaking, this new way of living shows itself in our relationships with each other. In our scripture today, Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 6, Paul gives us instructions to several different groups of people about key relationships. And he begins with the family. Colossians 3, 18. Wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. We're also supposed to live out our new lives in the workplace. Now, in these next verses, I want to make it clear, Paul is not in any way condoning slavery. What he is doing is giving instruction to believers on how they should live in the cultural system of the day. The best modern-day application is to the workplace and to the employee-employer relationship. Verse 22, slaves, In all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So our new life should show up in our families, in the workplace, and also in just all of our general interactions with each other. Chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. 
Ladies, when we say yes to Christ's rule in our lives, he means to rule absolutely every part of our lives, and that includes our relationships. This morning, we are going to look at some general principles about relationships that apply to absolutely every relationship we have. First, we need to recognize that we are created for relationship. On the precipice of the creation of man, a conversation took place in the Godhead. Genesis 1.26 records that conversation. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice the use of the words us and our. Here, God is revealing himself as a relational presence. God is one God who coexists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three who live eternally in relationship with each other. And then we see in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his image, in the image of the three persons of the Trinity who live in perfect relationship with each other. We are Trinity designed for Trinity life. One aspect of being made in the image of God is that we have been created with a built-in desire for relationship. This has both a vertical and a horizontal aspect to it. Vertically, God designed us to be in relationship with him. Horizontally, we were created to be in relationship with each other. John Piper writes that being created in the image of God means that we image God. We reflect God. We live in a way, we think in a way, we feel in a way, we speak in a way that calls attention to the brightness of the glory of God. Created in the image of God, we are to reflect him, to be his image bearers. And the way we do that is in relationship with each other. So given that we are created for relationship, have you ever wondered why relationships can be so difficult? When my husband does marriage counseling, he tells couples that marriage can either be the closest they will get to either heaven or hell on this earth. (laughs) It's true. And honestly, that can be true of absolutely any horizontal relationship. Living in this sin-cursed world impacts every one of our relationships, and not for, the, not for the better. Relationships are messy. People are messy. 
So if we are going to reflect the brightness of the glory of God in our relationships, it is going to require hard work. Paul Tripp writes this, the problem with relationships is that they all take place right smack dab in the middle of something. And that something is the story of redemption, God's plan to turn everything in our lives into instruments of Christ-like change and growth. You and I never get to be married to a fully sanctified spouse. We will never be in a relationship with a completely mature friend. We will never have self-parenting children. We will never be near people who always think, desire, say, or do the right things. And the reason for all of this is that our relationships are lived between the already and the not yet. We are living in between the already and the not yet. What does that mean? Jesus has already come to provide salvation for us, but his work in us is not yet complete. Already, we have seen sin defeated in many areas of our life. But the ultimate defeat of sin when Jesus returns has not yet taken place. Remember the line segment that we looked at a few weeks ago? Each one of us is somewhere on that line. But not any of us, not one of us has arrived. Not me, not you. We are the reason that relationships are hard work. So how is it, how do we go about doing the hard work of relationships? At least once a year, Bill and I spend a week in the Smoky Mountains hiking. Now notice I said hiking. I did not say hiking and camping. I want to be clear. A girl has to draw the line someplace, and that is my line. Anyway, we did that last week. We spent hours every day hiking trails. We hiked about 34 miles of trails last week, talking with each other, walking in silence, being amazed by the beauty of God's creation, When we hike, most of the trails that we go on are off the beaten path, away from all the crowds. And Bill has an app on his phone that we use to download maps that keep us on track when we're on the trails. It has a GPS, and it tracks every place that we are, and then it tells us, it gives us a guide of when we need to veer one way or another on the trail to keep us going in the right direction. Along the way, there are also usually trail markers when the trail is about to go in a different direction to keep us from going off course. In his word, God has given us several biblical relationship trail markers 
to help us stay on the right path in our relationships. And we're going to look at five of those this morning. First, in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation. John makes it clear that we are to follow God's pattern in our relationships with each other. Verse 7, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. John says here that we are to love one another, every one another, the way God loves. So, how does God love? In the Old Testament, hesed is the word that's used to describe the love that God has for us. It's used more than 250 times in the Old Testament, and it actually has no English or Greek equivalent to the word. Hesed comes from a word in the Hebrew that means to bow one's head towards another, and it stems from having a covenant relationship. In our English Bibles, hesed is often translated as love, faithfulness, goodness, kindness, mercy, devotion, and favor. Blended words using love, like loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love, actually give a fuller understanding of what the word hesed means. God used the word hesed to describe himself in Exodus 34 when he met Moses on Mount Sinai. Verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Verse 7, who keeps hesed, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. A modern-day translation of hesed could be God's sticky love. It's the kind of love that you just can't shake off. God's love sticks with us through every high and every low in life. Isaiah 54.10 describes the sticky love that God has for us. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness, my hesed, will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The closest New Testament word that we have 
to hesed in the Greek is agape. And it is close, but it still does not capture the fullness of hesed. In fact, Paul spends an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, just trying to put a New Testament face on the word hesed. In the New Testament, agape is the word that is used to describe how much God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Agape is the word used to demonstrate the love that God has for us, and it's also the kind of love that Jesus tells us to demonstrate to each other in John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Notice that Jesus says here, he's given us a new commandment. Hang on. Didn't the Old Testament talk about loving people? Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loveth at all times. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is it that's new about this command that Jesus has given? The new is in the second half of the verse. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. The new part is that we are to love others the way that God loves us, with a hesed kind of love. Let's read John 13, 34, inserting our modern-day translation of hesed. A new commandment I give to you, that you sticky love one another, even as I have sticky loved you, that you also sticky love one another. Hesed is the kind of love that keeps on loving. It is the kind of love that bows its head to the other person. It is the way that we want to be loved by God. And it is the pattern that he gives us for loving each other. Ladies, as we are following God's pattern for relationships, we need to work on increasing our ability to see each other the way God does. We need to develop a God view of others. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17 says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And with a new life comes a new set of eyes. Think back on the words that Paul used earlier in Colossians 3. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love, forgiveness. These are words that describe the new way that we are to view 
each other. Now, to be sure, we're going to have to work at this, but the better we get at developing God's sight, the less often we will catch ourselves defining someone by their outward behavior, their flaws, and the mistakes that they've made. That becomes easier for us to do as we live the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 are behaviors that reflect the character of Christ that is within us as we are becoming like Him through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Have you ever stopped to think that living the fruit of the Spirit requires the presence of others in our life? We don't do that in isolation. Think about it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they are all lived out. They're practiced. They're exercised with other people. Relationships are where we live out what God is working into our lives. They are the practical way we grow the fruit that the Spirit is producing within us. Now, one of the best ways we can live out the fruit of the Spirit is to love our enemies. Yeah, I know. It sounds like we're moving up to the graduate level in this relationship thing, doesn't it? We might not be quite ready to go there. But what better way is there to show others that we are a new creation in Christ? There are some things in the New Testament that appear in other religious teachings, like taking care of widows, not committing adultery, and loving your neighbor. But one thing, one teaching that is uniquely Christian is Jesus' command to love our enemies. In Matthew 5, through 45, Jesus said, But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. No more than anyone who ever lived, Jesus faced incredible opposition. He knew well what it meant to have enemies, and yet he loved them enough to die for them. So can we just be honest for a moment? Every one of us in this room has relationship wounds, do we not? People who have hurt us and may still be hurting us. Some who just plain and simple are our enemies. And how does Jesus say that we're to treat our enemies? We are to love them and we are to pray for them. And yes, that goes against our human nature, but that's great news because when we get to the place that we find that we are loving our enemies, we know without a doubt that we are dying to our flesh and we're becoming more like Christ. And here's the thing. Our enemies 
are wonderful instructors on how to love. Because if we can learn to love them, we can learn to love just about anyone. Now, to be clear, every enemy will not be our friend. They will not become our friend. Our responsibility in the relationship is simply to love them, to pray for them, and as Romans 12, 18 says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. When we do that, we know that we are acting like true children of the Father. Now, let me stop here and clarify something. I am not talking about spousal abuse, elder abuse, or child abuse. If that is the situation you find yourself in this morning, as we said in our workbook this week, you need wise counsel. And our biblical counseling ministry is here for you. Ladies, it is free, and I truly believe we have the best biblical counselors in this entire city, if not the state, here for us. But you know, it's not just relationships with our enemies that are hard. Let's face it, relationships in marriages, families, friends, and the workplace with anyone are hard at times, and sometimes they're hard for a long time. But even when relationships are hard, especially when relationships are hard, the answer is to love. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And remember the commandment he has just given to us in John 13, 34, to love others as he has loved us. Here's the encouraging news. This kind of love is not something that we have to grit and ground out on our own strength. Jesus goes on to say in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. When our relationships get hard, ladies, we can love through the power of the Holy Spirit that is living within us. This morning, I want to share with you four things that I am learning that help me when relationships get hard. Notice I said learning. I haven't gotten there. This is a process. First, God uses disappointment in relationships to remind me of my need for him. Horizontal community, our relationships with others, is not meant to take the place of our primary relationship, our vertical community communion with the Father. Jesus makes our relational priority clear in Matthew 22, 37, and 38, 
with the answer he gives to the young lawyer who asks what the greatest command is. Verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. When we try to find in people what we can only find in God, we will be disappointed every time. People are not meant to carry that weight. There is a space in our life that can only be filled by our Creator. Nothing else, no one else will do. The second thing that I'm learning is to keep the relationship bigger than the problem. When problems arise in relationships, and they will, it is easy for something that's pretty small to escalate to something really big in short order. And that's not loving the way God wants us to love. It's not loving the way God loves us. But when we keep the relationship bigger than the problem, we will find ways to approach the problem so that the relationship is stronger once the issue is resolved. A few weeks ago, I was watching a video where Marcus Warner, the president of Deeper Walk International, told about a time when he and his wife, Brenda, were having an argument. Now, her default in conflict was to talk it out. His was to shut down. During the argument, he got up and left the room. I think some of you are probably picturing this right now. He got up, left the room, fully expecting that she would follow him to the next room and try to get him to open up and talk. But instead, she walked into the room, looked at him and said, do you mind if I come and just sit next to you? Marcus said, that caught me totally off guard. My defenses were up, and I was ready to repel a barrage of words. I had no defense in place for someone who wanted to be with me when I was not at my best. Then his wife asked him, is it okay if I hold your hand? Marcus said, I looked at her like she was from another planet and said, you aren't very good at this fighting thing, aren't you? Are you? But he said, I let her hold my hand and I could feel something change inside. It was like a lock sprang open and my relational circuits came back on. Suddenly, being in relationship with Brenda felt more important than winning the argument. She was modeling for me what it looked like to keep the relationship bigger than the problem. Now he said their go-to phrase, when they're out of sorts with each other, has become, let's keep the relationship bigger than the problem. The third thing I'm learning is, the greater my love is for Jesus, the easier it is to love others. Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. As simple as it may sound, if we seek Jesus first, 
and we love him most, he will add whatever else we need in our life, including the ability to sticky love each other. And the fourth thing I'm learning is when someone is hard to love, remember there is more to their story. I want to close today by sharing a true Hesed love story. In his book, Rare Leadership, Jim Wilder tells about working at a summer camp for inner city residents from Chicago. He did that one entire summer, and one week that he worked, the campers were all senior adults. Here's the story in Jim's words. It was the practice at this camp to have two lines at mealtime. The senior adults who needed a walker to get around used the short line closest to the door. Everyone else used the other line. Our first meal of the week, I noticed a lady who rushed ahead, knocking over people with walkers until she reached the front of the line. (laughs) I reprimanded her. She obviously could walk fine and should be in the other line. But it was though I and my words to her did not exist. She stared ahead, demanding food, and rushed through the door the second the staff opened the lunch line. The surprise staff jumped out of the way while she grabbed food and devoured it before anyone else could eat. That happened at absolutely every meal. And the only way to manage the situation was for counselors to form a human shield in front of the Walker Brigade so that she would not knock them over. (laughs) To make matters worse, she smelled bad and refused to take a shower. Midweek, the female counselors could take the stench no longer, so a group of them forced her into one of the shower stalls. The fight and the noise could be heard all around, but everyone was grateful for the result. Another camper who drew my attention was an elderly man who was poised and highly educated. He spoke at least 17 languages and would talk with me thoughtfully and intelligently about many subjects. One evening, I sat down with him on a hilltop at the camp as he explained the differences between Hungarian and other languages. As we spoke, The difficult woman walked by, and I commented that she had been wreaking havoc all week. That's my wife, he said quietly. I was shocked and speechless. This was beyond belief, and I was as embarrassed as I could be for my comments. The old man looked at me a moment, Then turning his arm, he held out his left hand. I stared a few moments until he pointed to a long number tattooed there. We were both held in Nazi concentration camps. She was once a concert pianist. She toured Europe. She was a lovely, talented, caring woman. 
But at Ravensbrook, they cut away her brain a piece at a time without anesthesia. I was in Auschwitz when I found her after the war. She was like this. We sat a few moments just in silence, and I stared at his arm. After a bit, he said, people say I should put her in a home, but I just can't do it. I remember her. I remember Isn't that the way we want to be loved? Being remembered when we are at our best? Ladies, there's always more to the other person's story than what we know. So let me ask you, what would happen? What would happen if we would follow God's pattern for relationships, if we would develop a God view of each other, if we would live the fruit of the Spirit, if we would love our enemies, and if we would keep on loving when relationships are hard, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what would happen. Because sticky love is contagious, it would become like a benevolent virus going from one person to another person, from one family to another family, until we, before we would know it, we would find ourselves in the midst of a full-blown pandemic, putting the brightness of the glory of God on display for the entire world to see. Who here longs this morning to see that kind of epidemic spreading across our city, across our nation, across this world. Let it begin today in you and in me.